John 14. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word this morning. John 14, verses 1 through 6. 1 through 6. And this is a passage that uh, Christian and non-Christian alike are familiar with. It is read at many a funeral. Uh, but I think it will be an encouragement to all of us here this morning. Let's read responsively. I'll begin in verse 1. We'll begin together reading aloud in verse number 2. The Bible says in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Together. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go ye know, and the way ye know. Thomas saith unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. We're looking at the commands of Christ this calendar year, and uh, we're focused on this series entitled Cautions, Commands of Christ, Regarding cautions. And here's the command this morning from our Savior. Let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Let's pray together. Lord, there's much to be said in the next few minutes. Uh, But Lord, as most sermons go, only a paragraph or two of what I say will be remembered by each one. And Lord, I pray, God, that you would guide my words to be relevant in the ears of everyone here. Lord, I pray that uh, all of those who walk in today with a troubled heart or all those today who are trying to help someone with a troubled heart would receive something from the Bible that will go forth and minister to them. Lord God, life is hard. Life is very hard. And in a world full of trouble, we have a Bible that promises peace and hope. And so, Lord God, guide us to those uh, two things today. Bless our time, Lord, this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Our theme this year, the commands of Christ, we've taken the 52 commands of Christ and placed them into six categories. How many of you still have your bookmark we gave away at the beginning of the year? Uh, we're gonna, we've got a bunch more back in there. And so uh, if the ushers can hear me back there, if the ushers can hear me back there, they're, they're back counting the offering. If you guys could help by getting those bookmarks out, we'll redistribute those to those who haven't gotten one yet. On there are the six categories and the 52 commands of Christ. And so we've placed them into these six categories. We've said commands about Christian character, commands about the Christian's calling, commands concerning others, commands about the cautions of, God, of Christ, We've got two more series coming after the one we're in now. Um, around the time of the fall program, we'll talk about commands regarding coming to God. And that not only involves salvation, but just when you're in a backslidden state, making your way back to the Lord. And then the last one we'll look at are commands about making Christ Lord. Now, because we were a month away from this, looking at debt, and now we're back into the commands of Christ, let's just do a quick reset on why we're looking at this. Look at John chapter 15. Turn over to John 15 and verse number 10 in your Bibles. John 15 and verse number 10, and let's look there at verses 10 and 11. The Bible says, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in in his love. Look at verse 11 and we see the motive behind the commandments. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be 
full. Now, the, this uh, past week, as I mentioned, I, I flew Friday night, uh, Friday night into Saturday morning. I flew from Lima to Miami and then from Miami on to New York. And as I uh, uh, was uh, thinking over the sermon I was preaching today, I'm sitting there in my airplane seat and uh, I had a window seat and we're leaving the, the terminal and we're taxiing out to the runway. And it was a, probably about a mile and a half to two mile trip just from the terminal all the way out to the runway they wanted us to take. And uh, there were several times as we were going along that we would just come to a complete stop. And we would wait. And then we'd travel a little bit further and we'd take a left and go down this runway a little ways. Then we'd take another left and stop and we would wait. And then a plane would come by. And then we would take a right and ride a little ways. And then we'd take a left and we'd stop and we'd wait. And a plane would come in and land. And then we'd take a right. And then I look up out the window and I see this giant tower called an air traffic control tower. How many of you have flew and you know what are flown and you know what an air traffic control tower is? There is no more important building uh, at an airport than that air traffic control tower. Several years ago I, I used the air traffic control tower as an illustration and in my reading and studying about these, uh, you have to be hyper qualified to work as an air traffic control tower. In fact, of all of the jobs out there, uh, those who work in this role have what it's been labeled as the most stressful job in America. You're not allowed to bring any electronic devices up into the tower. No cell phones, no tablets, no computers. You're required to get X amount of hours of sleep per night prior to your shift. They want you to be alert and awake. Why? Because one mistake can result in the death of hundreds of people. I want you to imagine that we're sitting there on that runway and that airplane came in for landing, but the pilot had a spirit of rebellion toward the commandments of that air traffic control air traffic control tower. Maybe he said, I don't want somebody telling me what to do. I'm my own person. I don't like all these rules. Or maybe he thought to himself, you know what? That air traffic control tower uh, employee, he sure seems to be rude. I don't like his delivery. I don't like his style. I'm not going to listen to him anymore. I'm just going to go where I want to go and do what I want to do. Back about 50, 60 years ago over in Europe, there was the largest airplane accident that's ever taken place. An airplane was sitting there on the runway and uh, there was a haze and a fog and uh, uh, he was supposed to take off. That airplane was supposed to take off. He had not taken off in time. Another plane was coming in uh, for a landing and, uh, or rather, I'm sorry, there were two uh, airplanes on either end of the runway. Uh, I'm trying to get my story right here. And uh, they ended up taking off toward each other and by the time they both realized it, they were at full speed and they hit each other and everybody on board, both planes, were killed. Uh, the importance of that air traffic control uh, tower and the importance of the uh, uh, pilots listening are so important. Now, here's what I'm getting at here. The Lord Jesus Christ has a perspective over your life that you do not have and you cannot have. He sees every all of the workings that are going on and He gives us His commands not to box us in and make us spiritually claustrophobic, no, He gives us His commandments, so why? Verse 11 says that our joy might be full. I know this, I want to arrive at my final destination of heaven, but I don't just want to get to heaven as a miserable, cranky man. I want to get to heaven with a heart full of joy. 
And so if I can, I can take one or two routes here. I can look at these commands and I can say, you know what? Some of them are difficult and I don't like all of them and they go against my flesh and, and uh, I, I really don't want to obey them. But I understand the heart of the Savior is to fill me with joy and if I'll come under and obey, then I'll get to heaven with a heart full of joy. Or I can take the approach of, you know what? I'm my own man. I'm a rugged individualist. Don't tell me what to do. I don't like the delivery of the preacher. I don't like... Uh, that passage of Scripture, I avoid that book, I avoid that truth, and I'm going to do what I want to do, and you may make it to heaven, but you're going to be miserable along life's path. And so, uh, why does Christ give us His commands? Because He's trying to fill us with joy. Now, John chapter 14, we find one such command, and it's a very familiar passage. As I said earlier, it is read at most Christian funerals. And it is used often when sharing the gospel. All of us here are familiar with John fourteen six. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If you're a newer Christian, uh, that is probably a verse that you are either memorizing or are at least, at least very, very familiar with. Um, Jesus looked at his disciples who were filled with fear. And he commanded them that they should not let their hearts be troubled. But as we all know, the human experience is quite complicated. You, are, you and I are made up of a body, a soul, and a spirit. How many of you here have ever had a, had a day where your body felt great, but you were just in a bad mood? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you, that's right now, isn't it, right? You, you're, you're thinking to yourself, oh, how long is he going to preach a day, right? Uh, body, soul, and spirit. Your body's great, but maybe you are in a bad mood. Your spirit is crooked. Your spirit... Is sideways. There are other times where my spirit might be right, but I haven't been walking with God like I should, and so uh, my my soul is out of line and, and is unhealthy. The other times, where man, I'm reading my Bible and I'm praying, and and maybe I've even got a good attitude, but I've been neglecting the care of my physical body, and so maybe I've not been eating right or I've not been getting enough exercise, and so by two o'clock in the afternoon, I'm 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 beginning to to, to be off. I'm beginning to be filled. With trouble, And you know, the body, soul, and spirit, listen, they're so interwoven together that when one is off, it begins to affect the other two. I, I find it amazing that people who are constantly uh, uh, have a, a spirit that's sideways, one of two things hurts. Their stomach hurts or their head hurts. Uh, uh, and, and just because your stomach hurts and your head hurts, it doesn't always work in reverse. It doesn't mean your spirit's off. But, but when we're filled with ang- angst and we're filled with worry and we're filled with fear and our heart is filled with trouble, oftentimes our stomach begins to hurt or we begin to get that stress headache. The one can affect the other. But Jesus commanded, he said, let not your heart be troubled. So um, uh, Jesus, or Isaiah, Isaiah calls us sheep and Jesus calls us Sheep, And the Apostle Paul refers to church members as sheep. And what is one thing that all sheep have in common? Well, one thing all sheep have in common is that they're easily frightened and they need a shepherd to calm them down. And uh, you walk into church today and you may look like you have it all together on the outside. And I think that you ought to do your best to present yourself well. I don't think you need to come in and tell everybody how terrible your life is, right? Uh, put a smile on that face. But oftentimes, just below the surface, trouble is brewing. Is it quite possible that everybody here this morning either has trouble brewing below the surface or is very close to someone 
who has trouble brewing just beneath the surface. How many of you say, Pastor, that's me? Either me or someone close to me is dealing with trouble. Would you raise your hand today? You know what? Then this sermon today is going to be very, very relevant. Now, I'm not picking on anybody. Some of you didn't raise your hand because that hits just too close to home. And raising your hand hurts. And um, I want the sermon today to encourage you. The disciples here are very troubled, but why? Well, we're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at three thoughts about that this morning. My, my proposition is that when you let fear grip your heart, your faith quickly disappears. Fear and faith, they cannot coexist. When you find yourself in this place, you must quickly put your focus in the right places so that your faith can be restored and your fears can quickly fall away. Jesus promises peace in the face of life's problems. Let's look at thought number one this morning. Notice the disciples' reasons to fear. The disciples' reason to fear. Now, John 14 tells us that they were troubled. Jesus looks at a, a set of troubled men and he says, Let not your heart be troubled. But why were they troubled? Turn back to chapter 13. Chapter 13 lays out for us why they were troubled. Now, when you get home, I hope you'll read the entire chapter, but I'll give you quickly the Cliff Notes version of chapter 13. Here we find the disciples in the upper room, and they're getting ready to have that last supper with, with Jesus. And they, um, there they are in that upper room, and they come in, and the first thing that happens is that Jesus takes off, uh, uh, rather, takes, takes a, uh, takes a uh, towel, and he gets down, and he begins to wash the feet of each of the disciples. Jerusalem, as I understand it, to be, it's very dusty. They wore sandals back then. And so you'd come in and usually there was a hired hand or a servant and he would wash the feet of those when they first came in. And Jesus, uh, uh, didn't let a servant wash their feet. He became the servant. He got down and he washed their feet. And Peter challenged Jesus on that. And uh, Jesus said, no, you know, I, I am going to wash your feet so that your feet can be clean. He was demonstrating servant leadership. And then the next thing that happened was that they sat down to eat. And Jesus said to them, one of you will betray me. And he ended up giving the sop or the, the bread dipped in the, in the sauce there to, to Judas, uh, signifying that he would betray him. And Judas eventually leaves. And then Jesus tells them that... Um, uh, Peter would deny him three times that evening. That's basically chapter 13 in a nutshell. Let me give you why they were afraid, why they feared. Letter A, notice, they were afraid of change. They were afraid of change. Look at John chapter 13 and look at verse number 33 with me. John 13 and verse 33. The Bible says, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. So now I say to you. Look down at 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, whither I go, thou canst not follow me now. But thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter saith unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Now imagine the bombshell statement Christ is making here. Let's take this out of just the theoretical Shakespearean type of speech and let's make it very practical for me and you. Imagine that Jesus was alive today 
and he came up to you while you were at work and he said, I want you to quit your job and I want you to follow me full time. Yes, there's going to be sacrifices. You're going to have to learn to walk by faith. Your bills will be paid by faith. If you're a family man, you're going to have to leave behind at least in part your family and make some sacrifices there for some time. But I want you to follow me. And let's say you did that. For three and a half years, you followed Jesus. And uh, listen, ladies, I think there were probably even some women who followed Jesus around as well and tended for the needs of the men and, and helped to support them and take care of them. And so whether you're here and you're a woman or you're a man, let's say that you gave up three and a half years of your life to be a nomad. You're traveling all over the place. You're following Jesus. Yes, you get to watch him do some incredible miracles. Yes, you get to listen to him do some amazing teachings. But there you are following Jesus. There you are with him. And for three and a half years, you're watching this man do these great things and your mind begins to wonder. Maybe he'll be a political revolutionary and maybe we'll serve as his uh, uh, in his in his palace and, and maybe we'll have positions of great power and authority. And then all of a sudden, it comes to a screeching halt when Jesus looks at you and says, I'm getting ready to leave and you can't come with me. And you think, what? And so Peter says, well, hold on, because Jesus at times would talk in, in terms that were often vague. And so Peter tries to press him on it and get details. Where are you going that we can't go? And Jesus said, well, you can't go where I'm going, but one day you'll come be with me. Imagine the uneasiness of the unknowns that came with that statement. What are we going to do next? What are we going to do now? Our master, our leader is going to leave us here all by ourselves. Change is hard. But the reality is, is that change is a regular part of life. How many understand that we don't like it when other people change, but you and I change every day? Every day. I look back over my shoulder at who I was seven years when I got here and who I am now, and I have changed a lot. Thanks a lot, White Oak Baptist Church. I've changed a lot over the last seven years. You've changed a lot over the last seven years. Think back at who you were seven to ten years ago. You're completely different. Uh, listen, you're constantly changing. The people in your life are constantly changing. Uh, we, we, we change jobs. Uh, and listen, some change is good. Some change is good. How many of you like the change of getting a pay raise? Uh-huh. All right. All of us. Those of you on Social Security, you find out that you're going to get more every month. Yes, more is, more is better than less. Um, sometimes we like change when we find out it means a promotion at work. Sometimes we like change when it means we're getting a nicer phone or a newer car or a newer home. Uh, we like change when it benefits us, but we don't like change when it makes our life harder. How about uh, when we have to change jobs? You ever had that proverbial call into the office where you're told that uh, they don't have any more work for you and you're going to need to find somewhere else to work? And we're sorry, but um, you've been a good employee, but see ya. And they try to make it nice, but it's not easy, is it? Um, that can bring fear. That can bring fear. How about changes in rent prices that uh, make it unbearable to be able to live there any longer? And our market is changing, and the dollar is inflating, and it's getting more expensive. How many of you know what it's like to have less money at the end of the month because your dollar doesn't 
equal what it used to equal. And, and buying groceries now costs more. And putting gas in your car now costs more. And life is more expensive. And these changes are difficult. And when I was in Peru this last week, I stayed in the missionary's home. And he said, we've really been blessed. He said, uh, usually the way it works here, at least in this area of Lima, is that you rent a place year one, and then year two, they spike your rent by 75%. And they'll drive you out, and they'll bring someone else in and put them there. And so a lot of people only live in an apartment for one year at a time, and then they look for that next uh, uh, break uh, somewhere else. And he said, where we've been living here for years, they've only incrementally raised us a couple of times. But driving the rent up can bring about fear. Our children and our grandchildren are constantly changing, aren't they? Uh, listen, I loved when my son and daughter were like five and six years old because I could hold their pudgy little hands and, and I could throw them in the air and I could put them on the couch and tickle them. And, and, and I felt like that stage of life was natural for me and easy for me. Now my kids are, are, are entering those preteen and teen years and and, and I've got learning to do. I'm learning how to love them where they are. I'm learning how to help them navigate through life. And uh, those, those are challenging things. Uh, remember when I was visiting here to, uh, to be the pastor, I was a candidate. Uh, we have the old red pews back in here. And I was sitting somewhere in that area near where Lou and Janet are. And I remember my little daughter with her pudgy hand just holding my hand and then giving me a hug during the service. And I had a couple of people, and I've never told April this, but I had a couple of people come up and tell me later, I knew when I was going to vote for you, the moment your daughter gave you a hug in the service, I knew that was that uh, you were a family man and that uh, you were going to be good for our church. So thank you, April. Thank you for having done that. But changes are, changes are tough when it comes to our children and our grandchildren. How many here have grandchildren that maybe live a little ways away and you only see them every every so often, and every time you see me, it feels like they've already entered another stage of life, and maybe you feel like you missed a little bit. We go through hormonal changes. Teenagers going through puberty. Man, that stuff's weird, isn't it? And uh, they're trying to figure stuff out. Boys' voices are cracking, right? Hi, how are you? And, uh, you, you know, you, you, go through, you go through those things, and, and uh, there's, uh, you know, a guy, a boys used to think girls have cooties, and now, you know, boys sitting in churches. <laughs> you know, uh, constantly looking over at some girl across the room and being all creepy and weird about it. And, um, and then, you know, you get to about the age 25 and that frontal cortex has began to develop and you feel like you begin to hit your stride as an adult only to get to your midlife crisis and some guy goes out and buys a cherry red Corvette, all money he can't afford because he's hit that midlife crisis. Or, uh, ladies, you go through that time where you go from being able to bear children to where your, your body can no longer bear children and all of the hormonal changes that happen and then you start to get a little bit older and maybe you get into your 80s and 90s and you go from being independent to now you're becoming more and more dependent on others down until the end of life and these changes are challenging. These changes bring about fear if we let them and some changes come gradually while other changes happen unexpectedly and all at once and if we're hyper-focused on change then what we will uh, garner, what we'll bring to ourselves is great 
fear. They were afraid of change. Letter B, they were afraid of hostility. They were afraid of hostility. Look back with me at John 13 and verse 18. If it wasn't enough that Jesus was going to be leaving them, uh, he was going to be leaving them apparently in a way that was going to be violent. Look at verse 18. Uh, Jesus says, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Look down at verse 21. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. And as if the threat of Jesus leaving them behind wasn't enough to drive their fear, now they had to worry over violence. Jesus declared that he would be betrayed by one of the men that sat in the room with him at the Last Supper. One of their own would break rank and betray him. Eventually, when Jesus was arrested, do you know what ten of the twelve disciples did? Or rather, nine of the eleven, because one of them had been left. Do you know what nine of the eleven disciples did? They went and they immediately hid in fear. Hostility drove them to hiding. Eventually, all eleven men would end up in hiding. Why were they hiding? Because here was their logic, and I think it would have been mine and yours too. If they'll take our leader and put him up on the cross, then they're coming for me and you next. They were hiding for their lives. They were hiding over hostility. Now, we'll call this the fear of man. Really, it could also be the fear of death. Fear of dying. All of us here deal with the fear of man. All of us want to be accepted by those in our social realm. All of us want to know what it's like to be accepted. And all of us must face fears of standing for what we believe and dealing with the rejection of our fellow man. Imagine if they had said uh, to uh, those men there that night, those Roman centurions, if you're going to take Jesus, you're going to have to take all of us. They would have taken all of them. If you're going to crucify him, you're going to have to crucify us too. They may have been put in a much more difficult spot. But oftentimes, instead of standing for what we believe in a gracious manner, we end up running from and doing what we ought to do. Why is it that oftentimes we may struggle to pray over our food at the work lunch table? Now, some of you here might work in a Christian environment or eat lunch in an office, but I've worked several jobs where there was a community break room and you went in that community break room and you would warm up your lunch and you would eat with your fellow employees and I would sit there over lunch and while I'm praying for my food, I've got curse words flying all around me. People have no respect or care and and oftentimes they're even mocking you while your head is bowed and your eyes are closed and you're praying for your food. Why is it that we struggle maybe to pray over because of the fear of man? We're not afraid of walking out of church this morning and being a over our faith, but uh, while we don't face the fear of death, we might face the fear of the hostility of rejection. Why don't we uh, request prayer before a meal at a family reunion? Now, I'm just giving you some of the ones I've dealt with. Uh, there may be other examples here, but when I was a small boy, uh, we would go to a family reunion on my dad's side, and my dad was the only Christian in his family, and so three older brothers and their families, and my grandmother, and there would be cigarettes being smoked, and alcohol would be getting and drunk, and there would be language that was uh, uh, not appropriate, and my dad would talk to them about the language and things before we'd show up, but he would also talk to us, and he'd say, listen, the reality is they're not saved.
saved, but we're going to love them at where they are and we're not going to get wrapped up in their behavior, but we're just going to go. Well, the one awkward spot at every family reunion is my grandmother would say, all right, let's eat. And my dad would say, wait a minute, mom, we haven't prayed for the food. And my mom would give him a side glare and then my dad would say, all right, everyone, I'm going to pray so we can eat. And everyone would look at my dad like he was a little bit weird. And then my dad would pray, and then everyone would get in line awkwardly, and we'd move forward in eating. You say, well, did your dad stop praying at family reunions because it was awkward? Nope. And you know what? After about three or four years of doing that, everyone just said, all right, Tim's going to pray for the food. And we'd pray, and we'd move forward. Well, why is it that maybe we eat, we pray with our kids over food at home, but we get to a family reunion, and we're willing just to let that slide because of the fear of hostility. Why is it that we maybe don't read our Bible in public? Or why is it that we don't openly evangelize the way LaToya did at work and tell people about Jesus? Because fear can be driven by hostility. They were afraid of change. They were afraid of hostility. How about this one, letter C? We see they were afraid of failure. They were afraid of failure. Look at John 13, verse 37. John 13. In verse 37, Peter said unto him, Lord, why why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock or the rooster shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. As you read through chapter 13, you can feel the tension build. Then Peter declares that he will stand with Jesus to the death. And Peter was the disciple who was the leader of the rest of the followers. Now, when Jesus declared that even Peter would fail, they knew that surely they would fail also. You know, oftentimes, Christians, we can become so hyper-analytical over our calling to carry our cross that we end up doing nothing. We're standing there with our cross on the ground, and we, we, we don't move forward. Have you, have you ever given this a thought? That those who fail the most in life are the ones who are the most successful? Well, that doesn't make any sense. Think about it. Now think about it with me. Put your thinking cap on for a minute here. Those who fail the most in life are the ones who end up being the most successful. You know why? Because when they fail, they try again. And when they fail, they try again. And when they fail, they try again. And eventually they succeed and they move up a level in life. And then they fail, and they fail, and they fail, and they fail, and eventually they succeed, and they move up in life. And then they fail, and they fail, and and you get what I'm saying here, but those who fail and quit, you know what, they don't fail as much as those who succeed. You cannot let the fear of failure keep you from doing what you're supposed to do. Pastor, one time I tried to share the gospel and I made a fool out of myself. One time I tried to take a stand for what was right at work and I made a fool out of myself. And I vowed to myself, I will never do that again. I, I, Pastor, I would read my Bible, but I have tried to read my Bible in the past on a consistent basis and I have failed at that. So I have given up. I would confront this sin habit in my day-to-day life, but 
that I have tried and failed so many times before. Why would I get up and fight that battle yet again? And uh, we are driven by fear. Uh, Revelation 21 verse 8 uh, gives a long list of people who will not inherit eternal life. And the very first type of person in that list is this. It says, but the fearful, the fearful. Who are the fearful? Those who are driven or controlled by fear. Here in John 14 verse 1, we find the disciples are filled with fear. Why? They were afraid of change. They were afraid of hostility. They were afraid of, uh, of, of failure. And as a result, their faith had flown away. As a result, number two, we see the disciples' lack of faith. The disciples' lack of faith. Let's look at why it was they did not have any faith. Letter A, their ignorance of truth. Look at me at John 14. In verse number 1. So, again, Jesus is reading the room, and, and His disciples are like sheep. They're tremoring in fear. Now, maybe they weren't outwardly, but inwardly, these 11 grown men are afraid. Jesus is getting ready to leave them. They don't know where He's going. Uh, uh, Jesus is getting ready to be betrayed by one of their own, and, and they don't know who it is, and, and they're frightened by that. And, and, and Peter's going to fail. They're all going to fail. And Jesus looks at them, and in order to comfort them, He says in verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. So he's saying, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know. Peter asked him, where are you going? He says, you know where I'm going. I'm going to the Father. And the way ye know. Look at verse 5, and we see Thomas's ignorance of truth. Thomas saith unto him, Lord... We know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Now, I, I imagine here Jesus has got to be thinking to himself, and he's gracious. He's very gracious. But inwardly, Jesus has to be thinking to himself, Thomas, really? You've been following me for three and a half years, and you don't know where I'm going? You don't know where I came from? You don't know what my purpose was? Three and a half years I've been telling you, and you're ignorant of the truth. Here's what I'm going to tell you this morning, is that the truth will help you to have a strong faith. I've been amazed over the years, as I have sat with people in my office, or had long phone calls with people who've been attending here, either my entire pastor or much of it. And I'll say something to them in passing, that's just very a matter of fact out of the Bible. And say, so, oh, well, hold on, what did you just say? Well, where's that in the Bible? And I thought, think to myself, you have a hard time trusting God because you don't know truth. And if you'll under, get what I'm about to say here, if you'll understand truth and you'll grow in truth, what you'll find is that your faith will grow and your fear will fall off. A lot of times people will come to church and uh, they get lost in my preaching and they get distracted and Maybe they're like Brother Kyle. They're counting the lights while I'm preaching, right? Brother Kyle admitted it. He confessed his sin uh, last Sunday night in preaching and said he counts the lights in the auditorium. Now, some of you are looking around to count how many lights are in the auditorium. And we really work to make sure we don't have any bulbs out. I think we're good. Uh, a lot of times I'm in here on a Saturday on a ladder changing out light bulbs. But 
uh, making sure those are good. But you're, you're not listening to preaching. You're enduring the sermon. Some folks even slouch down and go to sleep while I'm preaching. And, and, and unless I'm telling a story, they're not listening. Look, uh, the light's on, but nobody's home. Amen? And, and you're ignorant of truth. Do you understand? I stand up here and I preach with passion. Not because I'm angry. I'm not an angry soul. I, I really don't have an angry spirit about me. But I preach with passion because I know that the truth I'm preaching can help you to have a strong faith in the Lord. And Jesus was the best teacher that ever lived. And after Thomas followed Him for three and a half years, He said, Lord, we don't know. How can we know? Matthew chapter 7 says this, Enter ye in at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to eternal life, or rather to destruction. And many there be uh, which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto eternal life, and few there be that find it. I, I wonder how many of us Americans, uh, here, how many times us Americans are given an opportunity at the gospel, and how many will die and go to hell. I remember, um, uh, I've shared this before, but I remember a handful of years ago, I was out putting door hangers on people's door, inviting them to Easter. And on the front of that door hanger, very colorful, pretty door hanger, uh, it, it had our, our theme for our uh, service, and it had you know the promotions for that day, and all that was going on. And on the back, it had the gospel message in very great detail, because you know, a door hanger is quite a bit taller, we had more room, so we really took the time and crafted that gospel message so someone who was searching could read it and find it. And I remember putting that door hanger on that door and I walked away from the door and I got around the side of the house and there was a gentleman who was cutting his lawn and he looked at me and he said, what's in your hand? And so I said, well, I put one of these on your door. He said, I don't care what it is. Get it off my door and don't ever come back. And I said, but sorry, but... And I went and I took it off his door. And as I was walking away, I thought, I wonder if this is this man's one chance to get the truth. And he's just rejected it before he even knows what it is. Ignorance of the truth. But it doesn't stop with Thomas. Other disciples get into this. Go back to John chapter 14 and look with me at verse number 8. It isn't just Thomas that's ignorant. Philip is also ignorant of the truth. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And again, Jesus is very gracious with Philip, but I imagine inwardly Jesus is thinking, hey, you big dummy, just back in chapter 10 of John 14, I had this long back and forth with the Pharisees about the Father. You were there! And I told them, I and my Father are one, and that if you know me, you know the Father, and that there's a complex, a, a, a complex unity here where, uh, yes, we are two separate beings, but uh, I am so much like the Father that to know me is to know the Father, and to know the Father is to know me. Where were you, Philip, when we had that uh, conversation? I looked down at verse number 22, and Judas uh, is going to get into the action of ignorance. Jesus saith unto him, uh, rather, Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? And now this is Judas's lack of understanding of the Holy Ghost's role in the coming age. And let me just say, there's nothing wrong with being ignorant about truth. The reality is all of us in here are more ignorant of truth than we are knowing of truth. 
You understand that? Nobody in here, to my knowledge, has the entire Bible memorized. You know what that means? There's truth that you're ignorant to and that I'm ignorant to. Uh, there's plenty of passages in here that I have yet to study and understand. There's more truth for me still to grasp and learn and to grow. And beyond that, there are things outside of the Bible that aren't directly in the Bible that are true, that I can learn in and grow. There's nothing wrong with being ignorant of truth, but what is wrong is when you plunk yourself down and you refuse to grow and make yourself better. Turn over to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 and verse 31. Now, I give credit to Thomas, Philip, and Judas for asking questions when they didn't know the truth. I love it. I, you want to make your pastor happy? I love it when I have a man stop by uh, my office or a lady come by and visit with my wife and I and they sit down with uh, me and they say, Pastor, Teach me this. I love it. I love when someone comes to me with a passage of Scripture and says, Help me understand this Scripture on a deeper level. On Sunday evenings, we have a young man here named Siddharth. He's, uh, his parents are Indian and they're Hindu. And he was raised to be Hindu. And one day Siddharth got his hands on a Bible. And Siddharth is a genius. He's got an extremely high IQ. He, he might be 18. I think he's a senior in high school. He's probably 17. And he read the Bible on his own. He got saved from reading the Bible all on his own. And he said to his parents, I want to go to a Christian church. He looked us up online. He found us. I had a meeting with his mom. His mom signed off on it. And so Siddharth comes every Sunday night. And Siddharth uh, will text me during the week some of the most technical doctrinal questions at 17 years old, things that I have not even all the way considered yet. Siddharth will come up to me almost every Sunday night after church with his Bible in hand and a passage of Scripture, and he has a question. He is hungry for the truth. Now, you may not be an academic, and that may not be your style, but you ought to want to know the truth. Look at John 8, look at verse 31. Then uh, said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, if you are held down in captivity of untruth and darkness, there's only one way for you to have liberty, and that's for you to seek truth with all your heart, because when you find truth, you will find faith, and when you find faith, Fear flees away. You see, fear, it grows and it does well. It, 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 it thrives in untruth. It thrives in darkness. It thrives in the unknowns. But when we bring in the light of truth, fear flees away. So we see the disciples' lack of faith or ignorance of truth, let her be, they're in action in prayer. Now, this is powerful right here. I hope you'll see this. Uh, John 14, go back to verse number 12. John chapter 14, verse 12. Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall, I, uh, shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified, in the Son, if ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. You say, okay, pastor, he told them that they needed to pray. Did they? Well, they did not. Look over, turn over to Luke chapter 22. This seemed to go in one ear and out the other. Jesus is looking at these men who are just, just filled with fear and fright, and he says to them, guys, you're ignorant of truth. He says to them, guys, 
He says, uh, you need to pray. You need to pray. And it went in one ear and out the other. Now, in Luke chapter 22, what we find is events that take place just hours after Jesus' speech in John chapter 14. uh, Jesus' teachings in John 14. Look at Luke 22. Look at verse 39. And he came out and went, as he was wont, uh, to the Mount of Olives. And his disciples also followed him. Now, before I read the next verses, I want you to notice something as we read. Jesus is troubled, and we already know from John 14 that the disciples are troubled. Watch how Jesus handles his trouble, and watch how the disciples handle their trouble. Look at verse 40. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel again, uh, rather, there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, uh, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So Jesus is troubled, and he increases his prayer. Look at 45. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. Sleep. So when they were in sorrow, they were in trouble, they did not pray, they went to sleep. And said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. And here's what I find. When people are troubled in their spirit, they're either going to get on their knees and pray, or they're going to want to pull the sheets over their head and shut the whole world out. And this is what this is what the disciples chose. In their sorrow, they chose to pull the proverbial covers up over their head and go to sleep. And Jesus, when He was in sorrow, He got down on His knees and He prayed. And then when He was in greater sorrow, He prayed even more earnestly. And the reality is that when fear grips our heart, the greatest tool we have is prayer. We get down on our knees and we cast our care on the Lord. We lay our troubles at His feet. We make our petitions known. We come to God and we partner in prayer and fear flees away and faith fills our hearts. Why were the disciples afraid? Well, we see that they had an ignorance to the truth and they had an inaction in prayer. And before I move on to point number three, I just want to ask you that are troubled this morning, how much are you studying the Word of God? How much are you growing in truth? How much are you searching out truth? You say, well, I'm not technical like Siddharth. That's great. Uh, Most of us here aren't this morning. But you can search for relational truth. You can search for emotional truth. You can search out for those things that are spiritually true and you can grow thereby and how much are we getting on our knees and how much are we praying to the Lord uh, in our time of fear number three lastly we see the disciples need to focus the disciples need to focus letter a uh, they needed to focus on the eternal and not the earthly look back with me at John 14 so again we get through John 13 and the disciples are very troubled troubled over change upcoming troubled over the hostility that was awaiting trouble over failure that was uh, impending and Jesus is going to help them take their eyes off the earthly and put their eyes on the eternal. Look at verse number one. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where, uh, I, that, that where I am, there ye may be also. He says, guys, you're so locked in on what's in front of you, and you have failed to look at what awaits you. Job chapter 14, verse 1, Job put it this way. He said, man that is born of woman is of full days and full of trouble. Listen, that's a very pessimistic attitude, isn't it? Man's days are full and full of trouble. How many agree with me that Job had a very pessimistic attitude in Job 14? But you know what? He wasn't wrong. How many of you have lived life long enough to know that Job is telling the truth? The man's days are few and full of trouble. Those of you here this morning over the age of 75, you, you know, because you have a perspective of life, you know that life is short. And you know that man's days are few. I watch that steam coming off that pot in the kitchen when my wife is cooking, and I, oftentimes I'll just stand there and I'll stare at that. And I'll think about the thousands of years of recorded human history and how that I'm only going to live to maybe be maybe a hundred years old. My great-great-grandkids will probably not know my name or know anything about who I was or what I did. My life is going to be over. I think about all of the troubles I've had in life. All the times someone has stabbed me in the back. All the times I didn't have the money to pay a bill. All the times where I, I had a fight with my wife or my kids. All the times I got in trouble with my parents growing up. All the times that I've gone to bed depressed or sad. All the times I've rolled around in bed at night wondering how I was going to make this happen or fix this relationship or help with this problem. All of the times that I have uh, gone in and had to deal with abuse in someone else's home as a pastor, I had one instance where a husband had drug his wife down the stairs by her hair, and uh, he was drunk when he did it, not in this ministry, it was another ministry, and the wife called me, her face was black and blue, they were not here legally, and, and she didn't want to call the police, and so she called her pastor, and, and I went over and I had, to, uh, I had to take that man out of the home, and it was the dead middle of the winter, there was snow on the ground outside, and, and I had to watch as the little their little girls were tremoring in, in fear and 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 help uh, uh, help this lady and her husband through this time because he didn't love her but he had a problem with alcoholism and and I think about all of the troubles that go on I, I look at the, this church that's my flock people that I love and people that I pray for and I labor in prayer over your troubles week in and week out and I look at you here today and I say it's time that we take our eyes off of what in front of us and we put our eyes on what awaits us we're going to spend eternity in heaven with Jesus forevermore oh what a day that will be when my Jesus I will see when I look upon His face, the One who saved me by His grace, aren't you glad that the days on earth that are filled with trouble are short and few, but our time in heaven will be voluminous and will be filled with joy and will be filled with eternal splendor forevermore. Someone said, only one life, so soon it will pass. Only what's done for Christ will last it is normal and natural to behold those things that are tangible 
and before us. But as Jesus instructed his troubled disciples, take your eyes off the earthly and put your eyes on the eternal. Where's your focus this morning? Are you looking at the eternal? Are you considering what God has for you? Or are you just troubled by the earthly? Letter B, we see we're to have our focus on the way and not the world. On the way and not the world. Look at John 14 and look at verse 6. The Bible says, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way. Thomas said, how can we know the way? And Jesus probably smiled back at Thomas and he said, Thomas, I am the way. Uh, You're not looking for some ambiguous path. I am it, Thomas. Do you know me? Then you know it. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Turn over to John 15, just a page over maybe, or on the same page in your Bible. John 15, 18. Jesus declared Himself to be the way to eternal life. The way to the Father. As believers in Christ, our focus needs to be on the One who laid down His life for our sins and is now seated at the right hand of the Father uh, who makes intercession for us. Jesus, the One who saved our soul. And when life's troubles overwhelm us, our eyes need to be locked on the way as opposed to the world. Look at John 15, look at verse 18. The Bible says, If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. Now let me just say this to those of you who are saved. Everybody look up here at me. If you've given your heart to Christ for salvation, let me just remind you of something. The world hates you. What I have a hard time with is why there are those who've given their heart to Christ for salvation and they are still in love with this world. You are loving a world that hates you back. You say, oh, they don't hate me. They hate your faith and they hate your Jesus and they want nothing to do with it. But yet, so many immature Christians, and I don't mean to be mean or unkind, I'm just trying to preach to you uh, truth. When I say immature, I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I just mean babes in Christ who haven't grown. And babes in Christ who have their eyes in the wrong place. They are infatuated with sin. They're infatuated with wickedness. They're infatuated with the world. The same world that took Jesus and nailed Him to a tree. We want to love back a world that hates us. Look back at verse 18. If the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of this world, therefore the world hateth you. Now, so many people, so many people uh, today are discouraged because life has beat them up and handed them heartache and sorrow. And I want to say to you, such is the world. Such is the world. 1 Timothy 6 tells us what? The love of... The love of... Speak to me, church. The love of money is the root of all evil. Sometimes people's behavior can be so untoward and can be so wrong and, and it just makes no sense and I don't understand why someone's behaving that way. Can I tell you that when you pull back the curtain, what you oftentimes find is that their motive is money. Their behavior is driven by money. Other times people are very kind to me and and they're, they're, they're trying to manipulate me, and they're trying to be sweet with me, but you pull back the curtain, and what you see is that they're looking for money, money. They just look to play the game, because 
And Christian, I'm here today to tell you that God has not called you to be beat up by the world or to be involved in the world's systems any more than you must. Uh, God has called you to fall in love with the way. Fall in love with Jesus. Walk down the right path. Walk in light. Walk in truth. Here's what I'm trying to say to you this morning. If every morning, every day, you'll take a few minutes to think about heaven and what awaits you there. And you think about Jesus, the one who's going to get you there. Those tangible problems that you have to deal with will be put in proper perspective. And life will be easier to live by faith than by fear. You see, when I behold the face of my Savior, and when I behold the place where I'll one day live, my faith grows and my fear falls off. But when I'm not focused on Jesus at all, and I forget where I'm going to spend eternity, fear grows in my heart and can end up controlling my life. Letter C, our focus, the disciples' focus, we see on peace and not their problems. On peace, not their problems. Now, this command to let not your heart be troubled is what we'll call a bookend commandment. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus tells the disciples in John 14, 1, He says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. Look down at verse 27. We'll finish there. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. The peace the world has to offer is not what I'm trying to give you. I'm trying to give you a divine peace that replaces your fear. Look at the rest of the verse. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And as you train yourself to focus on the eternal and on Jesus... God will take away that fear that grips your heart during life's problems and He'll give you great peace. Now church, I'm closing my Bible and I'm wrapping it up. Here's what I am and am not saying. I am not saying that you will stop having problems. Life is full of trouble. You're going to keep having problems. To be human is to have problems. How many woke up this morning and something hurt? Okay. All right? To, to, be, to be human is to have trouble. That something could have been your heart because of a great disappointment in your life. But what God promises is not to take away your problems. What God promises is that He'll give you peace during your problems. And there is nothing better than putting your head on your pillow at night and thinking to yourself, yes, I know I have this problem in my life. But I have peace that God is in control and that everything's going to be okay. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this morning. Are you here this morning and you have a heart that's filled with trouble and fear? God wants to take your fear and He wants to give you faith. He wants to take your fear and He wants to give you peace. You must buy in to learning truth. You must buy in to a life of prayer. You must buy in to loving your Lord. How many here today would say, Pastor Lejeune, there was a day and time in my life where I gave my heart to Jesus. I know that I'm going to heaven. Not because I'm a good person or not because of some set of works. I'm going to heaven because Jesus died for me and I have believed in Him. If that's your testimony, would you just hold up your hand right where you are? I know I'm going to heaven because I have believed in
in Jesus. You can put your hands down. Maybe you're here this morning and you did not raise your hand. And if you did not raise your hand, I want to thank you for being honest. Is there one here today that would say, Pastor, I do not know where I would spend eternity. If I were to die in my sleep tonight, I'm not sure if I would go to heaven or hell. If that's you this morning, I don't want to embarrass you. I won't call your name out. But in the privacy of the moment, with everyone else's heads bowed and eyes closed, I would like to just pray for you. If you're here today and you say, I do not know where I'd spend eternity when I die, would you just raise your hand where you are so I could pray for you? Is there one? I'm just not sure where I would go. I don't see any hands. I hope that means everyone here has got that matter settled. But if you are not certain, why don't you come see one of us after the service this morning? We'd be happy to take the Bible and help you get that settled. How many of you here this morning say, Pastor Lejeune, something in the sermon this morning the Lord used to touch my heart. Uh, Pastor, there's some area in my life where fear needs to fall off and faith needs to grow. Here's my hand. Would you pray for me? God has showed me something in my life where I can grow and I can be better. I see your hands. I hope that you'll take that decision and you'll make it personal. During our time of invitation, whether you've been to knee here at the altar or praying in your chair, I hope you'll take a few minutes and you'll make some change in the way you approach life. Lord Jesus, I pray you'd help us in the next few moments as we have a time of decision. That's what we've come here today, Lord. We've, been came, we've come here to be challenged by the Bible. Help us today, Lord, to make a decision that will help us to be better in this area. Oh, Lord, the world is filled with people who are controlled by fear. But, Lord, for this world to really change, we need the world to be filled with people who are controlled by faith. And so, Lord God, show us today and help us to grow. In Jesus' name.